Hi there, my name is Shoshana, and I'm a librarian at the Ypsilanti District Library. Welcome to the library's podcast, Ipsy Stories. Ipsy Stories is a podcast about the history of Ypsilanti told in story form by historians, academics, community members, and local experts. This podcast seeks to unearth stories and perspectives that may be new to you and are often unheard. Our hope is that by listening to these episodes, you'll gain better understanding of our collective past, present, and future. The views expressed by each guest are their own and do not represent the views of the library. Ypsilanti District Library Clerk Jerome Drummond takes us back again to Ypsilanti in its earliest years. Settlers traveling west had left their homes on the east coast behind, but not their interest. How would information be gotten? The federal government considered it crucial to its plans of westward expansion that unity of the population be maintained by shared information. The tool for achieving this was the United States Post Office. If, however, information was to rise above the level of hearsay, letters alone would not be sufficient. So the government allowed special low postal rates for newspapers at the same moment that newspapers were undergoing a transformation that would bring their price down to the person on the street. We will examine some aspects of this institution and note the similarities and differences between our time and then through the careers of two Ypsilantians, Charles Woodruff and Charles Pattison. Jerome Drummond is a clerk at the Ypsilanti District Library, working at the Michigan Avenue location, and is a member of the Ypsilanti Historical Society and the Genealogical Society of Washtenaw County. He majored in history in college, earning his bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan, Flint, has taught introductory genealogy classes at the library, and is writing a biography of Charles Rich Pattison. Today we are welcoming back Jerome Drummond, who was featured on the first episode of this podcast, which was titled Lucius Lyon and the Land Speculators. Today we will be talking with him about early 19th century newspapers as a major institution among the settlers of Ypsilanti, and will focus particularly on the two most successful newspapers that Ypsilanti produced in that era, the Ypsilanti Commercial and the Ypsilanti Sentinel. Hi Shoshana, thank you for having me back. I had a lot of fun doing the first episode of this podcast, never having done one before, so it's all new to me. It's interesting how podcasts are now a major avenue for information and entertainment virtually at your fingertips. It was not that way when I started out with news in the 1960s. I grew up with print material in my home. My parents used to subscribe to the Detroit Free Press, as well as Life Magazine, Time Magazine, and National Geographic. 
It was still the heyday of print journalism, as the three television networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, only had nightly news from 7 to 7.30 p.m. That's 15 minutes for local news created by your local independently owned station, and 15 minutes for national and international news piped in from the national networks, delivered in the most serious and deadpan way to indicate to you that the news was important, not simply entertainment. The primary goal of television broadcasting was entertainment, and it was a while before television knew how to merge news and entertainment, which they do so well today, it's hard sometimes to find the dividing line between the two. Serious, reflective news required print, and I think it still does today. For most people, that meant subscribing to a newspaper. The newspaper sounds like it was a major institution, and today you're going to talk about how printed news established itself nationally and locally. Newspapers require a literate public to thrive. What was literacy like then? As I said in the episode on Lucius Lyon, the settlers of Ypsilanti came from western New York State and were generally evangelical Protestants who had moved away from the New England Puritan culture. Whereas the Puritans were formal and hierarchical, the evangelicals had a greater sense of their own ability to interpret and live the principles of the Christian Bible. In either case, both Puritans and evangelicals placed importance in education and literacy because reading the Bible for yourself was an important principle of the Reformation. A literate market therefore existed for printed materials. So with literacy, the interest in local newspapers was early in the founding of the Old Northwest, but the critical mass of readership to support them took time to develop. Newspapers were often established by speculators who ran a few issues, then went out of business, merged with another paper, or were sold. When sufficient readers did arrive, newspaper survival depended on the owner's ability to size up his market and price point to get a start before his capital ran out. Like everything established in these early times, and here I'm talking about the period between 1820 and 1860 in the Midwest, capital and courage were required. What were newspapers like in this time? Did newspapers change as they spread across the country? The number of newspapers in the country at the start of the 19th century was small and well-established and reflected the East Coast from which they came by mail at specially discounted postage. The post office was a creature of the federal government, and the government had an interest in making newspapers available to the people settling to the West to keep them in the loop and to maintain unity. Even with this discount, though, they were beyond the finances of many people and were written for an upper class which owned the property which qualified them to vote. You might recall that the Federalist Papers, which argued for a national constitution, were a series of essays published in newspapers, because the purchaser of the newspaper was expected to be a man of importance and learning. Newspapers held this reputation in the generation of Jefferson, Hamilton, and Madison. Newspaper presses were owned by individual entrepreneurs. They were manually operated and used movable metal type. Newspapers were generally sold by subscription and were relatively expensive. The text usually centered around national and international news mixed with politics, such as it could be gotten from other newspapers. In fact, the post office encouraged this by allowing newspaper publishers to exchange issues of their paper with other publishers and requiring no postage to do so. The rest of an issue featured the owner's editorials if he was inclined, advertisements, stagecoach or shipping schedules, market prices, advice, articles on the wonders of science, the marvels of nature, new developments in technology, and adages for moral improvement. Prior to elections, they usually pushed the owner's slate of candidates, 
The newspapers reflected the views, tastes, and politics of the owner and his audience. There was no pretension to objectivity or place for opposing opinion, unless, of course, the opposing opinion was going to be trashed. But change was in the air. The country itself was changing. With the British and their taxation overthrown, people developing the country to the west, and an influx of immigrants bringing money into the port cities along the east coast, there was a steadily increasing middle class with its own interests, particularly focused on business. So newspapers on the east coast began to change, writing for a larger audience. As I said, it took some time for newspapers to establish themselves in the Midwest at first, but as settlement pushed westward, so did printing establishments. They created small weekly newspapers, organized much as newspapers were in colonial days. That is how they were at the time that Ypsilanti was founded. But then came a second change, which was a greater interest in local news. We say that the advent of Andrew Jackson as president ushered in a new sort of democracy centered on the common man, that is to say, the man with less property. The country was filling up with people who had no real connection to the old Federalist aristocracy, and they represented a universe of new groups who wanted papers that reflected their viewpoint and reported more local news. And so in the 1830s and 1840s was born the Penny Press. Inexpensive papers targeted to Whigs, Democrats, Free Soilers, Nativists, Temperates, Advocates, Abolitionists, French speakers, German speakers, and every kind of speaker. For members of the audience who may be unfamiliar with the term Whig and the term Free Soiler, the Whig political party believed in an active federal government and national banking system to handle national issues. And the Free Soilers were a third party that worked against the expansion of slavery into lands the United States was annexing. Both of these parties more or less coalesced into the Republican Party in the 1850s. The political parties subsidized the development of newspapers which advocated for them. Newspapers greatly expanded in number and geographic reach, and many attempts were made in our region to establish them. After several brief attempts, the first in the city of Ypsilanti, which thrived, and I should say survived, was called the Ypsilanti Sentinel. It was an advocate in its earliest days for the Whig political party. The Ypsilanti Sentinel was established by a local bigwig named John Van Fossen and associates of his to support the Whig party and the presidential run of Senator Henry Clay in 1844. Senator Clay having lost for the third and final time that year, Van Fossen no longer had an interest in it. His group sold their interest to a schoolteacher named Charles Woodruff, a person who would be so large in the city's future that we perhaps will devote a whole episode to him alone. Was Charles Woodruff related to the Benjamin Woodruff who founded Woodruff's Grove? I don't know the answer to that question. Perhaps our listeners do. If so, I'd love to know about it. I've seen supporters of this idea and also detractors, so I'm not prepared to say. I think he probably wasn't, at least directly. Otherwise, I think that would have been played up in past histories. That would have been an irresistible story. Is there a significance to the name Sentinel? Well, newspapers adopt names to inspire a certain image they wish to project, that they wish the reader to associate with their business. So if you want to emphasize news from afar, you might use a name like Courier. If you want to project the permanent record of a community, you might select Ledger. A champion of the people would be a Tribune, bringing light to the darkness as indicated by Sun, mercantile interest by commercial. The Ypsilanti Sentinel is your trusty, watchful guardian to alert you to what you need to know. 
What was the Ypsilanti Sentinel like? That's a difficult question, because as far as I've ever been able to determine, only a few issues from its early existence, 1844 to 1848, exist. Van Fossen is listed in the 1844 editions as the owner, but Woodruff is so listed from early spring of 1845 on, which suggests that he had true ownership of the paper, although that conflicts with other histories. Either way, it does appear that Woodruff had editorial control, as he would for the next half century. As there are few existing issues of the paper, the historian is forced to reconstruct his arguments through reprinted articles and other papers and the reaction to them. He was reputed to be a fine writer and speaker with considerable education and scholarly interest, very knowledgeable about his society and its workings, and well thought of in political circles, often portrayed as a man of strong opinion who valued his journalistic freedom over money. After the Whigs, Woodruff chose to be a Democrat, I think mostly because he did not approve often of the federal government. He was especially hostile to the war with Mexico. During the Civil War, he was in the difficult position that Northern Democrats wanted to be conciliatory with the South, which earned him the epithet of Copperhead, which was applied to everyone thought to be soft on the South. For a brief period in my life, I lived in Pennsylvania, where Copperheads live, the Copperhead being a poisonous snake whose coloring and markings make him difficult to see in the leaves and grass. Truly, a snake in the grass, as opposed to something obvious like a rattlesnake. What was the reaction to it in Ypsilanti? Ypsilanti was as torn over political party as any other part of the country. It was in the Civil War that the largest reaction to the Sentinel arose, and that was the founding of a Republican competitor paper called at first the True Democrat in 1864 by Charles Pattison, a Baptist clergyman and representative of the American Bible Society who took an interest in newspapers in his college days. The newspaper was named the True Democrat to mock the Democrats who were soft on the abolition of slavery, very much in the radical Republican camp. As the war wound down, Pattison renamed the paper the Ypsilanti Commercial, which in 1864 was already an old-fashioned name for a newspaper, but it emphasized Pattison's interest in serving the business community and being a booster for Ypsilanti. So did this political tension result in a feud between these papers? Does this compare to the rancor that we see today in politics? There appeared to be a feud. My sense is that Woodruff is an aloof patrician and Pattison the man in the street. Woodruff brings principles down from heaven like Prometheus, whereas Pattison worships at the altar of common sense. Woodruff is Plato and Pattison is Aristotle. They're irreconcilable, or so it seems. But if you read papers of this era, such as the Ypsilanti commercial, closely, you'll recognize that the editors were very much aware of how to use what we call today clickbait, and they were very much aware of creating a brand. Deriding competitors, even of the same party, was their common sport, and controversy sells papers. There are lots of historians who would say that the temper of our 21st century politics is very similar to that of the 19th century, and I would concur. Patterson at various times will accuse Woodruff of plotting election fraud, of being a failure to public office, of making a show of temperance in public, but working for the saloon interests secretly, of being a segregationist, etc., etc., etc. Yet at other times, he also describes Woodruff as eloquent and learned in a heartfelt way. When the Ypsilanti Commercial's printing office was destroyed by fire in 1886, Woodruff allowed Patterson to use his facilities to print the commercial 
until Patterson could rebuild. I'm sure there was compensation involved, but if Woodruff and Patterson were truly enemies, I don't think this gentleman's agreement could have occurred. Here's an example just to give you the flavor of the times from the Ann Arbor Argus of an editorial of velvet snarkiness directed towards the Ypsilanti Sentinel in 1879. Quote, Last week's Argus stated the debt of Ypsilanti was $65,000. The Ypsilanti Sentinel, in its issue of this week, says it's only $15,000. Yet on another page of the same paper, the mayor's official report is printed in which the indebtedness is placed at $88,320. Coming from some quarters, this discrepancy would appear inconsistent, but it may be overlooked by the readers of our contemporary. And then here comes the Jackson Patriot in 1880. Quote, Sentinel grows snappish over the use of the term meter as a measure of distance and remarks that mile is easier said, written, and understood. The Ypsilanti journalist feels equally vexed because the French insist on counting their money by the standard of franc instead of dollar. The gentleman forgets that all the world, although doubtless revolving around the central pivot of Ypsilanti, has not the same conceptions of measurement, value, and grammar as those entertained by the most noble Ypsilantian of them all. We are sorry the world is so ignorant, and that it will not consent to be measured by the wood ruffian pint pot. As I say, it was typical in this time for newspapers to be very opinionated and combative. I don't think that either publisher, though, could have gotten along with the Detroit Free Press in the days of the war, which was crude by comparison. How was the Detroit Free Press crude? The owners of the Free Press in the Civil War era were quite combative and loudly anti-Republican and anti-Black. They felt that Republicans were masters of corruption lining their pockets at the expense of the working class, and that the white working class would be destroyed by an influx of black workers from the South, as the Republicans secretly wanted. How did Patterson and Woodruff approach the business side of publishing a newspaper? By examining the extent issues of the Sentinel and comparing to Chapman's history of Washtenaw County description of the paper in 1881, It would appear that Woodruff never envisioned putting a lot of time into it. It was not quite the soapbox as so evident in other papers. It presented news articles and opinion pieces from other papers that could be patched together along with two pages of advertising. These were the usual vitals and legal notices appearing that generated revenue. Not a lot of local news. When papers operated in this era, they sold advertising for stretches of time and often simply used the same ad from issue to issue. So, much of the paper didn't change much from week to week. Both of these papers, like small papers then and now, were weeklies. So the editors had all week to set up stories and opinion pieces, only having to rush to get in late-breaking news. And even then, if it was too close to press time, they would simply include a short acknowledgement of the news, promising to cover it in more detail in the next issue. The Ypsilanti commercial hit the streets on Fridays, Local news items to be included had a deadline of Wednesday and advertising a deadline of Thursday. The Ypsilanti Sentinel appears to me was strictly about revenue. No reporters or correspondents to pay for. Most of the work was in the actual printing. Minimal work and maximum revenue was the ticket, and Woodruff kept it up for the rest of his life. Woodruff was a lawyer and sometimes held office, and consequently was involved in many projects about the city, and was especially involved in the promotion of education. He had run a school himself, and famously had a school in Ypsilanti named after him, the Woodruff School. Charles Patterson was quite different than this. 
His paper and other printing business was his mainstay, his bread and butter. In fact, both publishers did other printing besides the news. Handbills, flyers, cards, signage, stationery, journals, business forms, and governmental records for the city. He treats his paper often as his pulpit, as befits the man of the claw, pushing always his three main interests, temperance, abolition, and woman suffrage. These interests are of a secular and a religious dimension. Patterson comes from a very religion-oriented family. As I trace his genealogy, being clergymen or missionaries was the family business, and his relatives founded an amazing number of churches, and some of them traveled about the country like Johnny Appleseed, establishing the Lord's work. In fact, I am corresponding in the present time with a member of the family who is a clergyman married to an historian of theology. And so it continues into the third century. All papers in this time were chock full of adages, which were used as filler when articles couldn't quite fill a column. Patterson especially loves these. Here are some typical ones. Quote, A person can generally consume the most of his time by minding his own business. Quote, Wicked men stumble over straws in the way to heaven, but climb over hills in the way to destruction. Quote, Keep doing, always doing. Wishing, dreaming, intending, murmuring, talking, sighing, and repining are idle and profitless employments. Quote, a truly great man never puts away the simplicity of a child. Quote, never open the door to a little vice, lest a greater one should enter. Who read the newspapers here in Ypsilanti? Who are the audience? The audience for newspapers in this time tend to be well-educated, middle-class Protestants, and that was to be true of the East and the Midwest. Working classes only have representation in the big city papers. The Detroit Free Press, for instance, will champion the interests of workers and immigrants because that is the population of large cities. The Free Press is written for Democrats, and the strongholds of Democrats in the North were as they are today, urban areas. In the Ypsilanti commercial, for instance, there's nary a story about resident Catholics. My Irish Catholic ancestors in Ypsilanti, all working class, all centered around St. John the Baptist Roman Catholic Church on Cross Street, will not be found in its pages, except as follows. This is a story of an Irish priest and his prisoner. It goes like this. When an Irish priest rebuked his prisoner for drunkenness, he told him that, quote, Whenever he entered an alehouse to drink, his guardian angel stood weeping at the door. To which the prisoner Pat replied, quote, And if he had sixpence, he'd be in himself. So here we have the stereotypical drunken Irishman named, of course, Pat. For a business to be viable, it has to reach its targeted audience. And my Irish ancestors, while I'm sure fine people in many ways, were not that. The Ypsilanti commercial would, as most family businesses do, and this was true of the Ypsilanti Sentinel as well, employ members of the family when they are of age. And so newspaper reporting and printing would fall to them. Several of Patterson's children did this as their first jobs though none went on into a newspaper career. But a son of Charles Woodruff, whose name was Marcus Tullius Woodruff, took over the Ypsilanti Sentinel in its last years, after his father was too ill to run it, and went on to found another paper in town called the Ypsilantian. You can tell Woodruff was an admirer of Greco-Roman literature, naming his son Marcus Tullius after Cicero. So the reporters were relatives? 
Reporters as we know them today were really invented in the second half of the 19th century. Individuals named as reporters, which are nationally noticed, first come to the fore in the Civil War in larger city papers and magazines. After that, newspapers would discover the desirability of star reporters who attracted followings and increased circulation. They are the early print ancestors of media personalities such as Anderson Cooper or Lester Holt. Pattison and Woodruff would have mostly relied on their own observations and those of their social acquaintances for news in town while relying on formal or informal correspondence in surrounding towns. All local news came this way. State, national, and international news was reprinted from other larger city newspapers by way of mail or telegraph. I don't know who may have been paid or what sum that might be. I would think that any reporters would be freelancers paid by the story. So the papers would cover, for instance, the graduating ceremonies of the Michigan State Normal School, today known as Eastern Michigan University, and Patterson and Woodruff would be sitting in the audience, jotting down the high points of a professor's address to the graduates or the choir performance under the direction of Professor Pease. It was important for the paper owners to see and be seen and to establish relationships with the movers and shakers of town. Those were, after all, the demographic that would subscribe to the paper and place ads for their businesses. They also would know the backstory on many events, and that was critical for a newspaper man to know. You also would discern the tastes and opinions of your readership, which is vitally important to your paper's success. Pattison and Woodruff could be fine writers, though, as seen in this eulogy that Pattison wrote upon the death of President James Garfield in 1881. Quote, Thus has passed away the faithful boy, the obedient son, the product of struggling toil, the ambitious, untiring student, the successful teacher, the brave soldier, the victorious commander, the long-tried congressman, the recognized statesman, the senator-elect, the president whose beginnings were so grandly auspicious, in a brief career having won the confidence and esteem of men of all parties and above and beyond all the Christian noblemen, and name beyond it no greater in the English language, a man. Eleven weeks of anguish by reason of an assassin's bullet, a grand struggle for life, demonstrated what vitality he had in store to give to the nation had he lived. A nation mourns, but not without hope. The lesson of these eleven weeks will, we trust, prove invaluable. The Constitution still lives. Republican institutions and the love of liberty are all aglow in the hearts of the people. Chester A. Arthur has borne himself so nobly as to wring respect from his enemies and justify the hope that he will study well and execute the will of the people. For Pattison, this eulogy would come naturally, as he was a Baptist minister. We could go on a long time about the news business, and always the story is incomplete. There are always tantalizing stories and facts that are just out of reach. I don't like to guess at them myself, but sometimes your only recourse is to expect that most of what one newsman did was similar to what his peers did. I think, though, it always is important to leave a little mystery around the people of the past. Thank you, Jerome, so much for sharing this history with us. You really are so great at situating these local histories within a broader national narrative. These are figures whose presence still resonates today in Ypsilanti, even though far too few people know their names. Thank you so much, Shoshana, for giving me the opportunity to bring you another piece of 19th century Ypsilanti. 
The people of the past have a lot to say, and I like to let them speak for themselves. A special thank you to Sam Killian for all his work on the Ipsy Stories webpage. We couldn't do it without you, Sam. A special thank you to local musician Annie Palmer for providing music for this podcast. You can check out more of her music at anniepalmermusic.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening to Ipsy Stories. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast. You can subscribe to Ipsy Stories wherever you find your podcasts. You can also explore previous episodes with additional resources at ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories. If you have ideas or story suggestions, you can get in touch with me at shoshana at ipsylibrary.org. That's S-H-O-S-H-A-N-N-A at Y-P-S-I-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Hey, thanks for listening all the way to the end of the episode. In our next episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Beth Currens, Associate Professor and Interim Department Head of Women's and Gender Studies at Eastern Michigan University about the history of the Water Street Sculpture Garden. If you don't want to miss it or other future episodes, you can always subscribe to Ipsy Stories on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and neighbors about us too. Goodbye now.